0: November is Native American Heritage Month, a nationally recognized month celebrating Native Americans in their past, present, and future. It's an opportunity to raise awareness to the unique challenges Native people have faced both historically and in the present, as well as their important contributions to this country. This week on Noon Edition, our panelists will discuss preserving Native American heritage and culture in 2017, right after this hour's news. publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio and IU's radio TV building, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zoltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU and november marks the beginning of native american heritage month and the month is a time to celebrate the rich diversity traditions and histories of native people that's going to be our topic on noon edition today and we have three panelists in the studio with us we have carolina castorino santana the executive director of the american indian center of indianapolis indiana Um, And Heather Williams, Program Assistant, First Nations Educational and Cultural Center at IU Bloomington. And Mitch Toplitsky, who is Public Relations Director of the Language Conservancy in Bloomington. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or you can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news. At IndianaPublicMedia.org. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. And Carolina, I think I maybe messed up your title a little bit, or the organization, the American Indian Center of Indiana. Correct. In Indianapolis. Yes. So, all right. We were talking before the program. We don't think we've done a show on this before this topic, and uh, it's high time we did. So thanks for every, everybody for for being here, Carolina. Could you talk a little bit about what the center of what the center does, what your uh, what your responsibilities are?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I'm actually the brand new executive director. I'm in my second month there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, we offer a variety of services, mostly uh, catering to being able to offer um, social based services to the Native American population, but we also encourage uh, cultural competency and go into the community and schools to do presentations, have discussions about Native culture as well as uh, health issues. Our major grantors, one is with the Department of Labor um, that's focused on Native American uh, programs. And so basically we're trying to get our people from the community into the workforce, um, prepare them with the tools that they need for success. And then another uh, grantor that we have is the Indiana Minority Health Coalition. So we're really focused on bringing awareness to health issues that uh, disproportionately affect Native American communities.
0: How big is the population in in Indiana?
1: I would say, um, I believe we're sitting around 50,000 is what it is, Um, and mostly it's a total urban Indian population, and what that means is that there. are there are no federally or state recognized tribes in Indiana, um, so it's not like out west where we have reservation areas that are dedicated solely to specific tribes. Um, most people are from somewhere else. Like myself, um, I'm a member of the i an enrolled member of the Lipan Apache Tribe of Texas, and I'm also Mescalero Apache and Yaki. And um, there's a small kind of community of Western <laughs> uh, Natives living out here. And we do have the Miami of Indiana, um, but because of issues with um, recognition by the by the federal government and the fact that there is the Miami of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. they don't have that recognition. But we do offer services to them as well as they, they are the original people of the state.
0: Okay. And... Uh so heather, the uh, first Nations educational and cultural center Center of i u could you explain the mission there? As
2: well? Sure, I think we kind of split our time between well, I should say that we support native students first and foremost all the time with uh, cultural and educational support um and then secondly, we work to educate the public and campus focused on the um contemporary Native issues. Mm
0: -hmm. And and again, how big is the uh, enrollment for Native American students at IU?
2: Well, the numbers just went up this past year because IU did this change to their application um, application that allowed students who identified with two or more races to now name the specific races that they identify as. Mm -hmm. So once that happened and they were able to check the native box in that two or more races column, um, they shot up to about 300, mm-hmm. over 300. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was 60 something, mm-hmm. which, um, when you're thinking about over 40,000 students here on campus, that's less than uh, one point. I mean, less than 0.1 percent.
0: It's a it's a group that really easily could be marginalized if it's that small of a group.
2: Absolutely. So,
0: mm-hmm. Okay, Mitch, I wanted to ask you, kind of the same thing. The language conservancy. What's its role?
3: Well, we work with Native American tribes and schools uh, to help revitalize their languages. Uh, Most of them are on the brink of extinction. Um, We've been around since 2005, was when the Language Conservancy was formally established. Uh, And we do that, um, we're kind of soup to nuts. We do everything from teaching, uh, training teachers through summer language institutes uh, to developing textbooks, dictionaries, apps for smartphones, and we do advocacy work through media and public relations. We've produced films, um, we give talks, and we try to uh, call attention and bring more awareness to you know, not just the plight of endangered languages, but actually the fact that we can do something about it. Mm-hmm.
4: And that's a theme I've heard with all three of you is that giving awareness. And uh, can you maybe, Mitch, just start with you and talk a little bit about what are some of those initiatives that you have going of, of creating that awareness among the community?
3: Right. Well, I think the best known uh, work that we do is through our Summer Language Institutes. And the best known uh, example is the Lakota Summer Institute, which uh, has been around for 11 years, next year will mark its 12th year. Um, I went to it for the first time myself last year, because I'm new in town and new with the Language Conservancy, and I was pretty amazed. There was like 150 people, um, mostly teachers, or teachers in training, um, and not just from the Lakota tribes, but actually from all over the world. and um, it, they have formed a real community, and people come back year after year um, with the goal of, of learning best practice methods for um, teaching Lakota to the kids in, uh, on the reservations and off the reservations um, with this idea of uh, keeping the language alive. Uh, but we've done other summer language institutes. We do a Crow Summer Language Institute uh, that just completed its fifth year. Uh, we did, for the first time, uh, a language institute uh, uh, in Omaha Ponca in Nebraska. Uh, we're doing one next year for the first time in the Southwest uh, with the, uh, the ACMA tribe. Uh, we work with about 15 languages, 15 tribes now in total. So the summer language mm-hmm. institutes are best known, but um, for a general public, Um, I would say we've reached the most people through screenings of uh, this uh, film we made called Rising Voices, uh, which was shown on public television, uh, premiered in 2015, and we're still showing it. Uh, In fact, we're we're launching a new campaign to show it and bring it to more schools and communities. Mm -hmm. So that's introduced the work to a lot of the general public that probably Mm -hmm. know nothing about Native American languages or that they even existed.
4: Carolina, do you have some uh, initiatives mm-hmm. and do, they, do, do you find that they have to change to help match the need as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to, one thing I've been concerned about is uh, the visibility of the center um, in previous years. And so I really want to, with my social justice lens, kind of come in, hit the ground running and bring back some initiatives. Um, One of the things I'm working on actually this week is uh, speaking with some local media in Indianapolis to get the word out that for Native Heritage Month, or really for any needs on Native education, to contact the center. And the reason for that, I'm myself do presentations, but we're also working with the the Indiana Commission for Native uh, American and Indian Affairs to get a list of speakers because we have an issue in Indiana where there is a fascination with Native culture, but people are not always as well-versed. So someone who claims Native ancestry or even just uh, claims to have some sort of authority on Native culture will go into schools. They'll get invited through, you know, maybe a family member is that that has a child at that school and they'll invite them. But this is where a lot of the uh, misinformation comes into play. And so because it is so important to educate the community about Native issues, um, I really want to local schools and organizations to reach out to us first so that they can have that credible source and we can tailor the presentation to something specific. And so their students aren't really walking away with this general kind of stereotype of what native culture was like. We really want to impress upon the community that we are still very much alive and present now and, um, and, and part of the fabric of this nation. And so to kind of give that contemporary lens as well.
0: Could I just ask a question about about language, and not your language, but using using um, terms like Native American or American Indian or um, just Native born. What what's is preferred, or is there a preferred? Yeah.
2: I I think that's an age old question, and I <laughs> pref- myself I prefer Native or Indigenous because American Indian is what you see on government documents, so I try to shy away from that, but. Native or indigenous is what I personally prefer.
1: Okay, um, I have a tendency to prefer that also. I um, I know within the indigenous community we have a tendency to what we prefer is actually to go by our tribal names um, and in our own languages. So me being Apache, we're actually In de, which means the people. Um, so I prefer that. When it gets to talking to people who are maybe outside of that community, I do prefer indigenous. Uh, one of the main reasons is because I come from tribes on both sides of the border, and there seems to be this um, stigma that if you are indigenous from Mexico or Latin America, you're considered Latino or Hispanic, but the majority of the people there are indigenous, and so that's something that I really work to kind of um, get not only that community to recognize it, but others as well, so that you know these borders that were created didn't necessarily change our identities. They just changed the way that we're talked about.
0: Okay. If you have a question or a comment today, as always, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indiana Public Media dot org. The, um, you know, the legislature is going to be going into the session soon. There's all sorts of stuff that's always going on in Washington. I mean, are there, are there sort of keystone issues that you, face that that we should be aware of in Indiana that have to do with indigenous peoples um, or nationally that you'd like to to just sort of put on everybody's radar today?
1: Well, I think that the pipelines are ongoing issues. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very grateful that Standing Rock was able to bring to light Um, a lot of the issues that we've been facing in our community for decades and centuries. Um, And I don't want the energy from that movement to die down because there are several pipelines that are still being fought. So I think that's one of the major issues. Um, I think that also we need to really pay more attention to proposed budgets uh, because Native American programs are going to be um, suffering if the proposed budgets as they are now are going to go through. Um, And we've seen that historically, things that affect uh, Native people are constantly in danger. You know, with the Violence Against Women Act, that was, there was a huge component of that dedicated to Native American women. Um, And because we face the highest rate of sexual assault, we have the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada, the US, and Latin America. Um, and so, when any time any funding or any type of attention really is pulled away from those programs, our communities suffer. So, I encourage everyone to really pay attention more to politics. I think sometimes people take pride in not being political, um, but now is more. Is a time more than ever to be political and be aware of what's going on. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think I I should say it was maybe an unfair question. You've only been here for a couple of months, and Mitch, you've only been in the state for what, a couple of months, right?
3: Seven months now. Seven
0: months, Mm -hmm. yeah. And Heather, I shouldn't make you answer the question about Indiana politics yourself, so. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) I think think what Carolina was saying about the missing and murdered indigenous, indigenous women is highly important because as she was saying, the highest rate, one out of three indigenous women are on the books to be sexually assaulted. And especially um, thinking about the oil digging and the oil extraction up in the northern states of between the, the United States and Canada, uh, the man camps up there, and if you don't know what that is, Google it, because um, they're a scary thing. So whenever you, if, if you're in a town that's near a man camp, and then you draw concentric circles around these man camps, you'll notice that indigenous women that go missing, the highest population of them are within the first circle and then they just keep getting wider and wider. So um, pay attention to that and don't just brush off a missing woman flyer as a, um, oh, just another drug addict from the street that probably overdosed in an alley somewhere, like that's not what's going on indigenous women are being targeted because of the lax laws that exist right now.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that. Mm
4: Well, you know, and, and Bob, that, that brings up a good point, too, just regarding – Carolina, you you mentioned this about funding. Do you guys struggle with, with funding for your departments or have – or, I mean, there's never enough funding, right?
1: <laughs> Correct. And actually, so I just uh, returned late last night from a conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, for the major grant that we received from the Department of Labor. And um, being new in my position, and it's very important that I find out exactly what they are expecting of me um, – And one of the things they mentioned is that this year um, that we're creating a four-year plan basically for our funding in previous years, it's been two years. Mm -hmm. Now we're moving to a four-year plan, but it's also going to be competitive. Um, So chances are we're going to be okay here in Indiana. Um, And so I have to make sure that, you know, everything in my plan is rock solid. Um, But things like that, they said, you know, with new, changes in the Department of Labor, they are really um, enforcing that component of being competitive. And there are organizations uh, throughout the country, I was speaking with directors from other centers, um, that they are concerned about you know whether they're going to also reduce our amounts. Um, and so that is something that's regularly going on. I am trying to bring in some programs to our center that are going to be a lot more beneficial to Native people. Um, We do offer scholarships for Native students, so that is one thing. If you are a member of a federally or state-recognized tribe, you are eligible for our scholarships that we offer. And we do some workforce development. What I really want to do is bring in on-the-job training so that we're bringing our uh, participants into the center to work for us and get that experience that they need. I'm also working on getting a food pantry um, off the ground this month, so that our native participants can come in and um, fill up a grocery bag once a month, if that need be. So, I'm playing with the budget, but yes, it's um, every day. It's becoming more obvious that I really need to find these other sources of funding so that we can offer more and um, not just kind of put band-aids over, you know, these deep wounds. We really need to uplift our community and. It's going to take resources to do that. Mm -hmm.
4: And then Heather and Mitch, though, you're both associated with IU.
3: Uh, Actually, no. No. Okay. Not formally, although we have a lot of people from IU um, who've graduated or interns who are currently there. But we're a standalone nonprofit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, same question. Mm -hmm. How how was funding like with
4: with your group?
3: Well. it's a struggle, mm-hmm. um, although I would say that uh, we've been growing. Um, and that's in part because, um, you know, the word has gotten out that we do good work and it has produced some results, and, uh, and yet uh, not every tribe or uh, community that wants to work with us to help revitalize their languages has the resources. Uh, to pay for that, because it takes money. We have to pay for linguists, and we have to pay our staff and uh, all kinds of expenses. Now, in some cases, uh, we have this great um, uh, uh, fundraising team, uh, grant writers, who uh, sometimes will write the grants for the communities that we serve. That's one of the uh, uh, services that we provide. Um, In other cases, let me backtrack by saying about a third of our income comes from grants. That we raise to, to fund our work directly, about a third comes from contracted work with the tribes, and another third comes from uh, we do we do make available for sale uh, the language books, textbooks, dictionaries, and we've just started in order to try to diversify our sources of funding. We, we're trying to uh, uh, build a community of individual donors as well, because you we need to diversify. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's a bit of a rambling answer, but I would say it's a struggle. But we've grown. Um, and, of course, the other thing I want to add is language revitalization work takes time. It's, it's not something that – it's not a one-shot deal. So we're trying to work with tribes over a period of a number of years, and uh, there's always the concern, will the funding be available on a long-term basis? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And I should say that while we are affiliated with IU and all of our funding does come from um, Indiana University, we are always constantly coming up with new programs to further the awareness of Native people and just recently we're trying to make the push to bring Native students from Indiana historical tribes, so tribes that were once land-based here in Indiana and although they're not anymore because of the forced removal, um, but Tribes like Shawnee, Potawatomi, Miami of Oklahoma. Um, um, yeah, so those, those tribes were working with leadership there to find a pipeline or some sort of um, way, some sort of tunnel that will get them here to IU. And ta- also talking with the leadership and tribes and saying what do you guys need there? What is, what is it that um, you would like your youth to learn and bring back to you? And as Mitch was saying, some tribes don't have grant writers. So that's mm-hmm. always a number one um, position that we hear that they need. Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to take a short break now. Uh, we're taking it just a bit early because I want to get back and really talk, really dig into to, uh, heritage and, and Native American Heritage Month and some things of, of that nature. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
5: the Milton Metz Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines Plus, the in-depth audio, video and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. We're here in the Milton Met studio at IU's radio and TV building. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Joe Wren and we have three guests with us, Carolina Castorino, Santana is the executive director of the American Indian Center of Indiana in Indianapolis. Heather Williams is program assistant with First Nations Educational and Cultural Center at IU Bloomington. And Mitch Toplitsky is the public relations director of the Language Conservancy in Bloomington. You can join us on the program by calling 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can even follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. So we're talking about Native American Heritage Month, and I just wanna ask this very basic question. I grew up in a time when, um, let's just say, uh, sensitivity toward Native American issues was probably at a very low level. Here in Indiana, which is a name that is named for and Native American people, and uh, probably everywhere else in the United States. How far have we come? Have we come uh, a reasonable way, of, have we done very well to um, teaching the history of um, the indigenous peoples in, in the United States better than, you know, when I was a kid reading about what was happening?
1: Well, mm-hmm. I would say <clears throat> that it, it's coming in waves. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely see the potential to get somewhere, but what I've noticed with most things throughout history is we kind of go through these waves where we realize that these are issues we should be paying attention to, and we tend to get a lot of people on board, and then we see the fallback or the lashback, so to speak, and so then we have the everyone crying about um, PC issues and thinking that it's, really, it's a matter of over-political correctness. Um, but it's so much more than that. So I do see a lot of potential for <clears throat> our nation to kind of pay more, um, get for more awareness on these issues. One thing that we talk about a lot is the mascot issue. And some people trivialize that and say, well, there's more important issues. But for me, you know, natives are really the only people who are subjective to this um, rampant mascotry in this country. Uh, you know, other racial and ethnic groups aren't really having to face um, this on the scale that we do and it's always stated that it's an honor but yet it's always an extremely offensive caricature of what natives are expected to be and so my response to that is if we can't get you to see us as human beings if we can't get you to see the value in not mocking us how can we expect you to care about these larger issues that we do face? And that, um, because it plays into the invisibility. If you see natives as these, you know, half-naked people running around with headdresses and, um, and bows and arrows, and you don't realize that we are contemporary people, that we are still here, you know that, that contributes to, it makes it a lot more easier to ignore these bigger issues that we face. Mm-hmm.
2: Totally agree. I think that um, as far as recognition or awareness or learning about Native peoples as a contemporary um, people, capital P people, um, not much has happened. And I, I see examples of this over and over again because we do tours at the center with high school students and we give them our spiel, tell them what we do and what we're about, and then we open it up for questions. And this one particular example was this young lady um, was completely um, serious in her question. She says, "Do Native Americans use modern technology?" And I thought, "Oh my goodness, how am I going to answer this without without <sighs> um, mm-hmm. being being an angry Indian or being the um, making it about me?" You know, and I was thinking. Yes, yes, we do. We use we use cell phones, you know, we're 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 all around um using all the same things that you do. And she was just like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, like and in my mind, that, that her education completely failed her. And in turn fails us because then issues like mascots and um and branding that is offensive and degrading to Native people is allowed to continue. And we see this on campus all the time, you know? People wearing Redskins jerseys, people wearing Blackhawks jerseys, people with the Cleveland Indians logo, and nobody thinks that that's wrong. It's completely accepted within modern culture to do that. Uh,
0: I'm really intrigued by this topic because I went to Miami University. And, and when I was there the the mascot was the Redskins and there was always there was always a debate or a discussion and the university's position was well we've been endorsed by the Miami tribe of Oklahoma and then it was in the 80s that the Miami tribe of Oklahoma said no we don't endorse you anymore and they changed the name to the Redhawks, which just seemed like a very reasonable and right thing to do. Yet we still have, you know, the team in our nation's capital that goes by Redskins, um, which, to me, I, I'm to just be political now. that just seems like a, a no-brainer. Why would that be possible these days? But you mentioned, you know, other names like Blackhawks and, and the Indian, the Indians, and in Cleveland, are there are there names that are uh, less offensive, or are they all offensive?
1: I find them all offensive, and it, Redskins is especially offensive because it is a racial slur. Um, it is the equivalent of every other slur that we would, you know, kind of bleep out of television. <laughs> it is the equivalent, um, but the idea of making us a mascot in the first place is what really hurts, um, because. Again, you don't see this in other cultures. And people will make the argument, oh, well, what about the Vikings? Well, Vikings not a racial or ethnic group. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, th- there are these – it's this idea, like I said, of dehumanizing us and, you know, um, making us – nothing more than this caricature and um, and something for them to put on. And I talk about that a lot with cultural appropriation also because um, people think that that's being over politically correct or being oversensitive. But at the end of the day, when you're putting on this native garb um, for whatever reason, because you think that you have native ancestry, because you want to be a part of something or because you're doing it for a mascot, for a team... Um, you, you get to take that off at the end of the day. We don't get to take off our skin color. We don't get to take off who we are. And so we don't have that kind of protection when it comes to issues um, concerning violence against people of color. And so that's what I try to take that route to explain that to people who are kind of um, giving me that wall and not really wanting to see it. Um, Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I do come off, like you said, as the angry Indian and um, I get told, well, you know, your people are supposed to be peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) And then that's when I tell them I'm Apache and that's not really our stereotype. but. You mentioned something very important about the schools, which is why I'm really driving this hard um, for people in the state of Indiana to come to our center and reach out to us for presenters, because the school is where we tend, that's where it begins. Um, We can't expect adults to respect Native American issues if we're teaching them at fourth and fifth grade that Columbus discovered America still. My children every year, It's an issue. They come home and they're like, mom, we are talking about Columbus again and I don't want to get kicked out of class. (laughs) And I'm like, well, ask them if they'd like somebody to come to the school and talk about it. Because there are, um, you have to be age appropriate, of course. You're not going to go and tell elementary kids about The raping and the pillaging necessarily but it is important to have that discussion about we have been here we were here before we had civilizations we had communities uh prior to you know the the arrival of europeans um and then and then with that the pan-indianism thing tends to be the issue so they'll say we're going to learn about indian heritage month everybody draw a teepee and pick an an Indian name, and I'm like, you know, that's really not how it goes. Not all natives lived in teepees. Um, Their Indian name isn't something that you pick. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it really starts there. And when you have native children in these predominantly white institutions, and they're learning these stereotypes and myths about their own culture, um, you know, that's creating a completely other psychological effect that um, has to be addressed. So we really need to focus at the school level. Mm
4: Well, and we just, you know, just come to think of it, we're talking about mascots and sporting events. We just had Halloween a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago, too, and and that's something I've even been keeping an eye on. I don't know how many of you participate in the candy uh, thing, but um, that the amount of children that I've seen dressing up as Indians or, or so forth, I, I didn't see it as much this year, if at all. Of course, this is a non-scientific uh, study. This is just me just saying this, but I'm just curious in terms of, and um, maybe Mitch, if you want to jump in here too, in terms of how parents can talk. What are some of the ways parents can talk to their children about issues like this?
3: Oh well, gosh, I'm not a parent. <laughs> well, but if, if, if a parent were to- But I do to give away candy. To, to, okay. <laughs> you
0: had parents I did have parents
3: <laughs> well you, you know what I want to say as I was listening to to my my uh, uh, fellow guests here is that gr- I grew up uh, I'm a white guy who grew up in New York and New Jersey, and I'm pretty well educated and I went to college in an Ivy League school and all that and the town that I lived in in New Jersey actually had an Indian name, Paramus and you know what I didn't know anything i didn't know anything about Native American culture and history. I don't remember learning about it, speaking about it. it even I f- realized how naive I've been. <clears throat> and like I said, I consider myself an educated person and interested in history in general. So just um, it's a little bit of a divergence, but I wanted to share that Perspective. Mm -hmm. It was astounding when I first started working in the language conservancy seven months ago. I was like just reading the basic facts. You know, like why do why do people not speak the language? The boarding schools, the eradication of the language. Like what? That's horrifying, and that's big. That's our history. I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So, I just wanted to share that from my perspective.
2: I think that that's one of the main reasons that. The mascots continue and the education is so watered down in uh, at elementary schools that all of these horrific things like boarding schools, residential schools happened. The raping and the pillaging and the eradication, the genocide of Native people happened. And what better way to let America forget than to romanticize Native Americans and make them a peaceful people as if they were moving on with their lives, um, as if none of these bad things were in their past. But uh recently for Native American Heritage Kickoff Month, the our kickoff event we had Siobhan Marks, an Anishinaabe woman who's bringing this dress back to her Anishinaabe people, um, that was lost because of the eradication of her culture um, from the boarding school era. And um it is that that um where was I going with this? I guess so I got talking <laughs> about Siobhan. <laughs> The um oh because because the because we're romanticized and um made to be a peaceful people, all the stereotypes that natives have, the then people think, well, they're fine with it, they're okay or they're not even around. There's so there's there's no signs of them here, so we can we can portray them however we want to, or we can say that we're honoring them because, because they are not they don't have a loud enough voice to say that we're not. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's 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 a terrible terrible
1: um, cycle that keeps happening because the education system is is failing and that reminds me of recently um, social media brought a lot of attention to it. There was a textbook in Canada um, with an excerpt mm. that stated yeah. um, the European settlers needed um, land to live on, and so the First Nations people agreed to move. <laughs> <laughs> to make room for them. and I'm thinking, you know some people could say, why would you make a big stink about that? But that's that's so important to the foundation of uh, civilization in the western hemisphere that you know it, it was not an agreement. We did not agree to leave um, our homes. We did not agree to give up who we are. Um, and this is something we're still fighting for. And you know, I think about my grandfather, was born in San Antonio, Texas, and he was a victim of the the mission schools, which were very similar to the boarding schools where um, the you know the the Catholic uh, missions were coming in and basically indoctrinating them, forcing the native children to accept Christianity, forcing them to adopt uh, what they considered civilized ways. And language is so important to me because my grandfather learned Apache, then Spanish. Then English. And each time there was a transition, he was punished for speaking his Apache language. Well, then, when Texas became much more Americanized, um it was He was punished for speaking Spanish. And so then my generation, we kind of learned it in reverse. We learned English and Spanish mostly at the same time, but really English first being here in Indiana and then Spanish. And now we're trying um, to learn Apache. And we're fortunate that our language is not dead, but um, we do not have some of the more sophisticated revitalization programs out there. And so it's really, um, you know you you have a hard sense of who you are even when you can't identify yourself in your own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't talk about your culture in your own words and you have to you have to struggle to find that
2: mm-hmm. I th- yeah, I think absolutely like language is so important and and the during these residential school areas mission eras mission schools and and boarding school eras the they were stripped of everything that made them Indian so that there's this famous quote that says, kill the Indian, save the man, meaning we're going to take everything away from you that means that you're Indian, but we're still going to let you live and be a man in this country. Um, And that's where we're, we're, we're still dealing, even generations now, like my grandfather went to Haskell Indian School too, back when it was a boarding school, and he was made not to speak our our uh, language, seed language, and um, because of that, they were taught that being Indian was shameful, and then they never passed their knowledge on to their children. And now, which were our parents, right? And then us now are kind of noticing that we not that it hasn't been noticed before, but we want to revitalize. And we want to be we want our communities to be vital and uh, thriving. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our speaker said, uh, Siobhan Marks, and this is where I forgot where I was (laughs) going earlier, I remember now, Um, she said that it can take up to five generations Mm -hmm. for intergenerational trauma to work itself out. So since all of these things happened to our ancestors and um, not too long ago generations, we are still dealing with the aftermath even though it didn't happen directly to us. We're still dealing dealing with it.
0: Mm-hmm. We have about uh, fifteen minutes to go in the program. If you want to give us a call and talk about any of these issues, we're at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indiana public media dot org. I want to follow up on the language issue a, a little bit because how many languages? You may have mentioned this, but how many languages does is the conservancy um, working with and, and what goes into you know, trying to revive a language that hasn't been really spoken uh, very much or written very much for what, decades, century, a century or more?
3: You have a few hours? <laughs> I have 15 <laughs> minutes. <no, I'm, laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's The number keeps question. growing yeah. even since the time I started working seven months ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're up to 15, 15 about 15 language. languages now. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, What goes into it? Well, I guess as an example, I'll I'll talk about um, a language and a tribe that we just started working with, so I've been around it in more of the ground floor, and that's with uh, the Acoma I mentioned earlier in New Mexico. Um, We started working with them. They have about mm, 40 to 50 speakers still left who are considered fluent. I've heard varying numbers. Uh, as a first phase, we started by sending um, a small group of linguists uh, there earlier this year to uh, record the elders who were still fluent in the, la- in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we used a process called rapid word collection. So in a, in a, in a matter of a couple of weeks, we gathered uh, almost 10,000 words. And then with those words on tape... Um, Those uh, linguists then set about to uh, sort of digitize and edit them, and uh, and and that will be the formation of a dictionary. So there will be the creation of a of a dictionary, which I'm told is going to be the largest ever Native American language dictionary from the Southwest ever put together. Then, with the dictionary armed with the dictionary, um, in the in the year to come, we'll do the language institute to train teachers. Um, using the dictionary and and then a textbook, we'll create a textbook. So over a number of years, it goes in phases, it's collecting the words, recording the language of the people who still speak it, creating the dictionary, creating the textbooks, creating the apps, training the teachers, um, four, five, six years and beyond. I think that's
0: very—it's uh, really instructional, and, and to think of a language that only has forty to fifty native speakers or you know, people who can speak it fluently is pretty remarkable.
3: It varies a lot, and um, I probably know one percent of <laughs> yeah of all of this. Um, it's it's big and complicated, but. Um, I know just right after I uh, – well, right before I started working, um, the last remaining speaker of a language, the Mandan language, passed away. That's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been recorded, but there are no more fluent speakers alive. Um, some tribes – the Lakota uh, tribe that we work with has, I believe, about 2,000 speakers mm-hmm. left. Uh, but the number keeps declining. still a pretty small number. Mm-hmm. We have a phone call. so
0: you could get your headphones set. We have uh, Joy from Ellettsville, who has a, a comment she wants to give us. Joy?
6: Yes, hello. I'm a native Métis from Canada. Our family's from Canada. And we were raised rather traditionally, and it, it is not a native tribal, uh, you know, but it's based, basically, it is sort of a tribe uh... because we've been mixed for four four or five hundred years and people who are mixed bloods marrying mixed bloods and there's a tradition there, there's the bead bead beadwork and everything which we learned as children but uh, does the Native American Center here consider Métis anything other than just what most people consider us which is kind of mutts
1: well, to answer your question, um, Métis is recognized as a cultural group. Um, now, it is more related to Canada and First Nations communities. Right. Um, and so to, that's kind of a complicated question because as far as services are concerned, we only um, service members of enrolled who are enrolled with state or federally recognized tribes. Um, and that has to do with our grant policies and um, a lot of the federal regulations. Um, and then we have an agreement with the Miami of Indiana as uh, they are recognized as the original people here. Um, so that, in that respect, we wouldn't be able to provide services to members of that community, but we do recognize um, the cultural importance that communities like the Mati hold.
0: All right, right. Joel Okay. okay
6: thanks for know, that's what I kind of figured we we had some strange experiences in the American South uh, back in the 50s of not knowing which washroom to use because we felt strange either way uh, but that's you know that's beside the case but uh,
0: well thanks for calling us we really yeah. appreciate it hey. All right. If you want to give us a call, 812-855-0811 or toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. Joe? Maybe just briefly, i was just curious about what is Indiana's history when it comes to
4: Native tribes who lived here, what parts of the state?
2: I think uh, the this building right now, and most of Indiana University, was built on Shawnee land, so the Shawnee were in this area first, and... Um, um, then farther north you get you have the Miami, and then Potawatomi up farther north, and to to even expand upon Indiana land and the politics there, the Pokegan Band of Potawatomi recently purchased a piece of land up near South Bend, so that you know uh, an ancestral Indiana tribe has returned to Indiana in at least the beginning stages, and we're hoping for the best for more.
1: Um, yeah, and I actually so I was at IUPUI, um, and while I was there, I worked on I was the president of the Native American Student Alliance there, and while I was there, I worked on a cultural heritage project um, for like the, the names, um, places of significance um, in Native history in Indiana, and that's where you learn um, that was like prime Miami territory, so a lot of the words that we have for some of. Um, the like trails come from the Miami language. Um, so the Miami, the Shawnee, the Pokagan, those are kind of like the major um, tribes that were in the area. You had the Lenape or also known as the Delaware who passed through. Mm-hmm. This was also that a point where people were tribes were passing through from the east when they were being moved out west. So there's a little bit uh, more diverse culture than we think of sometimes.
0: Okay, we're gonna go to the phones again. We have two callers. We're gonna try to get in before the end of the program. Thank you for those answers. We have Bob from Bloomington first. Bob.
6: Hi, uh, greetings. Uh, I've heard the process by which a language is systematized working with 40 or 50 of the native speakers. So we're talking about preserving tradition.
0: The question I have is how does the language now innovate in terms of incorporating using the grammar and, and the context and syntax to bring in
6: new words according to the changing environment of the culture. For example, words related to, let's say, communications or technology. So the question is now, is there a sort of a, a set of guidelines for incorporating new words into the language once you've systematized it? Mitch.
3: That's the kind of question I dreaded getting. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, it's a I'm great. Correct, I'm teasing you. It's, it's an important question. It's a great yeah. question, and the reason I say that is because it's kind of out of my league. I work. You know, we have linguists. I, there is an answer to that, and I don't even want to try. I'm going to um, tell you to contact me um, at the Language Conservancy. Go to our website, languageconservancy.org, yeah. and contact me, and I'll research that for you and answer okay, it properly um yeah, just, otherwise i'll make a fool of myself <laughs> all right
6: hey, hey Bob. Ba-
0: thanks okay, for calling bye. bob and bye. we're going to go next to elizabeth from morgantown indiana elizabeth
7: hi yes uh, i enjoy the uh, what we were hearing, hearing of the western indians and uh, enjoyed being around happy texas and the uh, people there uh, but my family came from southwest virginia North Carolina border, and I have visited the the, um, museum in in Indianapolis, and uh, uh, I just don't find anything about any of the tribes in that direction. I know nothing about our heritage. I I haven't seen even a souvenir or a pot or whatever, you know, that they collect in the West. I've seen nothing out out of the Eastern Indian tribes. Uh, Saponi is trying to uh, get, uh, gather together, and some of the other tribes, there's so many tribes in that area that disappeared that just uh, everybody believes they're gone. I was told when I went there searching for family that there are no Indians in Virginia. Well, they are, you know, but uh, I would like to see something in Indiana because uh, a lot of the people, including my own family, migrated to Indiana from that area, and some of them, many of them, was because of Indian issues, like uh, teaching the Indians to read and things like that that was illegal, and they were shooed out of uh, uh, that area before the, before the. Uh, I think it was before the uh, removal. But uh, we know a lot about the removal, but that's that's all nothing before and i know nothing of what their lifestyle was like i don't know
0: we're going to get a quick well anyhow we'd
7: like to see something in indiana about uh,
1: our our heritage back there
0: okay thank you elizabeth we're gonna get a quick answer reaction
1: yeah um i mean and unfortunately that is the result of um, genocide and removal is that cultures are lost, cultures um, become invisible. Because, um, you know, with the East, that's where Europeans arrived first. So the greatest impact was there. Um, even when you think about Latin America, like I said, I'm very big on. Um pushing you know th- that community to identify with their indigenous roots well in Mexico it's a high indigenous population in the Caribbean it's very low they're not completely gone but it's very low because that's the first point of contact and so that's really is what the legacy is um, we do encourage people who come from these tribes that are less recognized um, less visible to reach out to us and uh, you know we'd be more than happy to you know help people with doing the research and um, bringing some away awareness to the area
0: all right i want to thank you we are out of time carolina castorino uh, santana heather williams and mitch Toplitsky. thank you all three for being here with us today for becca costello joe Ren, and mike Pashkash i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening